Hello, James. Hi, Jackson. How are you doing on this very fine Monday morning for you guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the weather's getting a little rainier here in Seattle and um, settling in for a long, dark winter. But um, <laughs> all the poker games are inside, so it's a nice place to um, stay relatively dry. Well, you may have heard the uh, sudden laughter of our guest today. Uh, We are not alone. James, would you introduce our lovely guest? Yeah, our lovely guest is a fellow Solve for Why alumnus. And um, yeah, she, well, I'll let her talk about herself a little bit, but um, yeah, I met Lily at Solve for Why, and um, she's a great poker player, and happy to have her on the podcast. Lily, thank you so much for joining us. Um, So Lily, you're a professional based in Las Vegas. Is that, I mean, I know that to be correct, but I'll ask you, is that correct? (laughs) Yes, that's correct. Um, I've been playing poker in Las Vegas for... Where are you playing these days? Um, oh, I'm playing at the Wynn these days. I actually just moved over. Aria has been my home for like a lot of years and I just moved over to the Wynn and I love it. I love it there. Uh, the game is, uh, 1500 cap buy-in the two five there that I'm in, that I play in. So it's a deeper game, which is a lot of fun. You know, it allows for a lot of more maneuvering and it's, it also means that people just make like much bigger mistakes, which is really fun. <laughs> it also means that when I get stacked, I get stacked for more. So uh, once in a while, when you have those coolers, like, you know, I mean, I'm not getting stacked as much as hopefully my opponents are, but when you do have those coolers, you can get, you can lose a lot. So. Yeah. That makes me, that makes me think of one of my favorite Berkeyisms, uh, which is that, you can't win the max and lose the min at the same time. <laughs> uh, so if you're if you're moving up to win more when your opponents fuck up, you're going to lose more. Exactly. Stacked. So yeah, you take the good with the bad. Uh, and exactly. if you're if you're the kind of player Lily is, there's going to be more good than bad. But most likely, <laughs> we're going to hear about some bad today, since this is just hands. We hear about <laughs> normally spots where something goes awry. At least uh, I hear you have a, a hand for us. Hopefully, it's just you know how much value can I get from this you know, drunk millionaire, but perhaps it's not. <laughs> I wish. Uh, no, it's a, it's a, I picked, well, I picked this hand for you guys because, uh, I mean, hopefully, hopefully it's interesting. It's a very strange hand. It is, I've never played a hand like this before in terms of, I've never played a hand with this exact line before. Um, it's very like, very much not standard for me and also very player dependent and situation dependent, which I think is something that is one of the things that um, is the hardest to perfect in live poker is, you know, like finding, finding a strategy, you know, finding what your construction is and then being able to leave it to exploit people. Um, because it not only is it difficult, but you never actually know if you're doing it right or not. Because <laughs> um, you never really get enough feedback or have enough information. So it's really interesting. That's uh, so I think this hand will be interesting because I think it'll 
there's a lot to talk about, uh, you know, based on who the opponent is uh, versus how to play it uh, against other opponents. So, yeah, poker players, we have to be, we're explorers. We're not historians. Um, <laughs> like we have to navigate the unknown. And we talk about these hand histories to practice taking a few steps into the unknown, but Lily's right in that you'll never know and you still have to go out there and try and explore. And that's kind of true in all domains, but poker I think is a very good training ground for dealing with that reality. So take this out, be our Lewis and Clark, take us out into the unknown. Let's see what we find. <laughs> uh, all right. You want me to give you a little bit of, what, do you, what kind of information should we start with with this hand? Anything that you feel is relevant. Okay. All right. Well, I'm playing... Okay, so I'm playing win two five. And uh, the the villain is a reg there. He's like a... He's an aria and win reg, actually. Very nitty player. It's kind of one of those guys that's there all the time, but doesn't really do much, like kind of takes up a seat, like not like someone who's, he's not, I don't think he's a very sophisticated thinker by any means. He plays pretty tight and I would say tight aggressive, but not like overly aggressive. So probably the type of player that people see a lot actually in these games, but I would say he's, he's nittier than, than average. Sometimes I found like, like when you say nittier, do you mean like, he just has pretty um, tight ranges pre-flop, or do you mean that like he'll also find some big folds on later streets? Because um, I found like a lot of players, like when they have tight pre-flop ranges, they can sometimes be a little bit more sticky of anything um, later on in the hand. So I was curious. Yeah. You played with him a lot, so I feel like you might have some feel for that. Yeah, that's actually a really good point is that sometimes when you have players who like wait for stronger hands than post-flop, they don't really want to get rid of them, right? Because they've been sitting around so long waiting for the best hand, so they just go with it, right? And that's definitely true a lot. Um, This guy, I think, is capable of folding and I think would overfold, which is (laughs) what I based my hand play on. So yeah, I think not only is he tighter than average with his, you know, opening ranges and stuff, but I also think he's able to make some some stronger folds and like overfolding to, you know, points where a thinking player might realize that, you know, they have to buff catch with some hands or whatever. I think he's just folding too much. All right. So we got a nit. Who yep, else we got? We sure do. Uh, we've got uh, jacks, two red jacks under the gun. We open for 20, which is pretty standard. And it folds around to our villain on the button, who three bets to 100. Uh, and then it folds back to us. So we call, which actually I um, already think is debatable. Um, yeah, I was going to say, would, what sizing would make you want to fold? 100. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you guys are 1500 deep we yeah we're we were i think we were more than 1500 deep yeah a little more than 1500 deep so uh, yeah i mean it's not a great spot already 
I think that like a like a sixty a, a three bet to sixty is an easy call. I think a three bet to eighty is also a pretty standard call. I think a three bet to a hundred is pretty borderline uh, for me because uh, I mean, especially against this player because I'm opening under the gun and he's five xing my open, so he should have a pretty narrow range there. Does he three bet ace king in this formation or any formation? Um, I mean, I think he does, which is uh, which is why I continued with the hand. I think he does have ace king. Um, yeah, I might discount aces a little bit for this side of thing. I mean, I would, and um, I think when we flop a set, um, you can probably make some money against like queens and kings and aces when he does have it. So. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'd say like, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't fold jacks here, but it's not a great price for sure, and we are out of position. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is that like folding jacks here feels just really tight, even though the the three bet is large. Folding feels folding feels weird to me. So I don't know. Yeah, it's, I, didn't, uh, I didn't like it. <laughs> I think our opponents sophistication is going to have a lot to do with can we perceive properly in this hand or not? You know, so things like how does our opponent navigate ace high boards? Is our opponent going to be constructing a balanced checkback range? Is our opponent going to be constructing a relatively exploitable check rate or checkback range? Can we get kings and queens to fold on ace high boards? Like, I would say the more that your opponent is weighted towards... All right, so let me put it like this. How are we going to actually get this $80 back? So we're obviously going to get a very large portion of our money back from the small percentage of time of the time that we flop a set. So that, that goes without saying. Now, the question becomes, like, how often can we... How often can we win in other situations? So, like, can we profitably bluff catch on boards where we flop an overpair? And so here's where sophistication comes into play. Like, if we can call one and then fold to the second barrel very profitably, which kind of insinuates that ace-king shuts down and we can predict that, uh, then we have a much easier continue. If we think that our opponent's going to be barreling at some frequency and that we're going to get bluffed when we flop an overpair after putting in a flop bet, that makes it more difficult to continue. If we can turn our hand into a bluff on an A-side board where our opponent checks back, uh, that's going to be much more profitable to continue versus a spot where we're just sort of forced to try and realize when our opponent checks back the flop and the ace comes. So these are the things that I'd be considering. About considering. And so I think that the main... A lot of that just sort of hinges on the general level of sophistication of our opponent. So we're up against an opponent that we, we know based on frequencies to be tight and now we're sort of speculating on how sophisticated this player, how how accurate is their bluffing frequency going to be, how accurate is uh, their bluff catching frequency going to be. And so that's kind of what I would be thinking about with do I call here or not? And so basically the question is just how sophisticated this player, the more sophisticated, the more I want to fold, the less sophisticated, the more I want to continue. Yeah, for sure. I agree. I, I often sort of think of it 
um, like in terms of like, is this a player that I, you know, that I play much better than post-flop or that I think I can play much better than post-flop. And in this case, I do think that's the case. I think that um, he's plays, he's going to play pretty face up post-flop to some extent, um, not capable of really making me make any difficult decisions. And the opposite is true for, you know, me versus him, you know, which is that I'm capable of, in knowing when it's a good spot to try to barrel and that kind of thing. And, and my range is also less defined than his. So, so yeah, that was one of the things that kind of makes me more likely more interested in a call pre-flop is that I just think like it matters much less what cards come post-flop for me than it does for him in terms of chances of winning the hand, even though I am out of position, obviously that's not ideal, but, um, but even given that, I think uh, I have a lot better chance of winning the pot than he does from a skill standpoint. Yeah, I think it's going to be really close, and I don't think there's any shame in folding. Uh, I think it being able to fold here is a really good skill to have. I think Kong could very easily make money. I think folding in position would be really poor, just because the all the ways that we can sort of win without flopping a set become a lot easier to navigate when we're in position. Um, and, our, our and, we probably make, and we probably make way more like when we do fall the set. Yeah, I think that's true as well. So if I, I think like risk adjusted, um, just because you're increasing your variance so much by calling, I don't mind a fold, even though I think probably calling makes a little bit of money on average. Um, but I'm glad you called because it mm -hmm. means that we get to talk about whatever the hell happens next. Yeah, and I'm not a very risk-averse human, so uh, so I like a call. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, uh, I like I like excitement. I'll take variance and excitement. So, uh, but that's not necessarily uh, the best quality in a poker player. But it makes for a more fun podcast. It's a common quality. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, all right, so we end up calling. There's about 200 in the pot going into the flop, which is uh, deuce three ten with two clubs. Uh, we have two red jacks. So I check, and the villain C bets pot. He bets 200, which also sucks. It's, you know, and so then my question, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, does he, is he, does he do this with, his overpairs, yes. Like, do I think he does this with queens through aces? I mean, more likely queens and kings than aces, I would think, to pot it um, because people are just generally more afraid of of overcards to the turn on the turn river. Um, but then I, so so my first thought um, is, okay, I should probably just fold jacks to this sizing, and then I think, okay, but also. You know, being the type of player that's pretty unsophisticated, I think that he may also uh, make a pot size bet size, uh, make a pot size bet with his ace highs because he's just going to take one stab at it, and he thinks, okay, I have nothing. Let me just make a two hundred dollar bet and hope she folds. So, I mean, and these are the kinds of things that are obviously really tough to know. But so I felt like I was going to continue to the turn with Jax and see what happened. Um, but that's also a very arguable uh, decision, I think. Yeah, I think uh, it's pretty reasonable to continue here just 
because the sizing sort of screams, like I want you to fold. Yeah. And then you kind of just have to weigh like, what is this person's level of risk tolerance? And I do think that there are a lot of players in the field where they really want you to fold when they have Kings because they just so much rather win the pot with Kings and, or then risk like possibly losing. But I think that this player being someone who's in the casino, you know, very, very often, I think most of those players have built up a reasonable level of risk tolerance such that it's probably more of a strategic decision than just like, I want this to be over <laughs> with why they would bet $200. I think it's the $200 like King's value bet here is more of like a panic thing just from a, a player who's relatively inexperienced. So I agree that basically I would call it as well. And the reason is that I think the most likely hand by a reasonable amount is ace king. And it's a hand that we're going to navigate relatively well against. Well, that's good to hear because, uh, cause I did call. So, so it's nice to get the confirmation. What was the, I'm just curious, like, did you have any, um, do you have any memory of like how he was betting? Like what was the timing on the bet or anything? Um, I've been trying to pay a little bit closer attention to, um, libraries since I feel like I'm, I'm pretty happy with my theoretical understanding in a lot of spots at this point but um, yeah I think that's an area where I, I've neglected in the past so did you pick up anything on that? I can't say I necessarily got any like um, any physical reads he did um, he bet two black chips so it wasn't like this big like show of a bet it was just like kind of flicked in a pot size bet very casually and pretty quickly. So it wasn't like tank. Let me think about what to do on this flop. It was just like, okay, 200 and flicked it in for whatever that's worth. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that means it too much either way, but um, yeah, I, I like uh, just being aware of that. Kind of yeah. yeah that's there's great. a, if anything, it, it shifts it a little bit towards Ace King in my mind, just because it's kind of consistent with. I think the general tell philosophy is that strong means weak, weak means strong. A basic instinct for some level of reverse psychology. So casual in this instance, I think will often mean bluff, whereas like more deliberation seeming like tentative, seeming scared is more likely to mean value. This worked well for me yesterday. So I'm definitely yeah. <laughs> a return bias. Our new blanket philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, no, no, it's been, I, I, it's been I, for a while, but I, I actually think, think that's true though. I, agree. I Yeah. I, I think it's, it's like a weighted thing though. Like there are definitely times where this layer is just like, feeling actually pretty comfortable like and flicks it in or a player like this yeah but i you know i would i i agree that like it, it influences it but yeah it's not a sure thing for um for sure it's uh yeah sometimes i try to pay attention to, to the fact of like how people put their chips in um do they put them in like they care about them or like they don't care about them you know, like a lot of times you'll see people put chips in and kind of like let them fall, you know, 
or you'll see them put them in and leave them in stacks. And I, I, you know, I mean, I don't know either way, but sometimes I feel like I even have caught myself in years past putting chips in more sloppily when I want people to think I don't care about the hand, which means I have a stronger hand and putting them in more deliberately when I want to look deliberate, but I'm actually bluffing. That would have been consistent for me as well. Yeah. (laughs) So, and we're just, you know, normal people with normal, you know, behavior patterns and instincts. So I don't think it's unreasonable to think that people. Yeah. I think think focusing on one's own behavior is actually a really good way of, trying to find tells in others. Mm-hmm. We share a lot of the same, you know, mechanisms, obviously. And so definitely when I'm in the tank, I find myself wanting to look more nervous when I have it and the opposite. And I don't know if that works. I think if anything, probably people are catching on to that kind of thing over time, that knowledge gets passed around. And so it's something that I think I should probably really be more intentional about not doing. But definitely, it's a good thing to keep keep an eye out for. So do you think that using two blacks is trying to look like they don't care? That's a really good question. I don't know. I think it's possible that he's trying to look like he doesn't care. I think it's also possible that he's just betting two blacks because he's betting 200, and that's the easiest way to bet it. Yeah, I think, so. I think those tells of how people bet are going to be more useful for players who put in less volume just because certain habits are going to develop amongst a guy who's spending like 40 plus hours a week in the casino. So I'm a little bit more focused just on the, the sizing, which just feels like he wants you to fold. Yeah. This is something that actually we see in the Academy all the time where people really size up when they want folds and size down when they want calls. And I think that that is actually a good strategy against a lot of the field, which is why it gets reinforced amongst the players who are trying. But it's very exploitable. And so you have to be, you just have to be aware of who you're up against. So if you're up against Lily, you don't do that because she's just going to snap you off the jacks. So let's see what happens on the turn. All right. So we get, uh, so we've got 600 in the pot to the turn, which is a nine of clubs. So it completes a club flush. I check, which is just standard line for me, and he checks behind. So, um, you know, I mean, it's uh, trying to break down his turn checking range. I I don't feel like he checks back flushes there. I could be wrong. I mean, the only flushes he has is like ace-queen of clubs and ace-king of clubs, but they're still relevant. And then he also has, obviously, over pairs with one club. I'd be surprised if this player is described as rebetting ace queen against an under the gun open. What do you think? I mean, you play with them more, obviously. Yeah, I mean, I think I think ace queen of clubs could be a three bet, but okay, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. You know, but not necessarily, and certainly not necessarily five x either. So, I mean, I, I I do have some question as to whether or not that's even in his range, but. Um, yeah, I think. I think ace-king is a lot more likely, but when we're attributing sort of a lack of sophistication to someone post-flop, I think we have to do the same pre-flop, which is part of why I think we can maybe continue a little bit more easily, although I didn't emphasize it as much pre-flop because I I don't think it's as strong of a read, since our main read was that this player was tight. 
But essentially, I think we can slightly discount the adjustment made by virtue of us being on the gun. And it might be a little bit more just based on like how this person likes to play certain hands. And I think some people like to try and end things quickly with ace queen, you know, for similar reasons that they do. So with ace king, uh, they feel entitled to win, but they know that it's going to get tricky in some instances. And so they just want to win now. Uh, so I think that's a much more common type of thing with ace king. And people are also obviously a little more comfortable with ace king. But I think that the same kind of thing can happen with ace-queen. So I wouldn't discount any of the ace-queen suiteds too much. I think we should consider all of them to be present. And if we're wrong about our opponent's sophistication, we can also include... It, it would be wrong, I think, to like round other sort of ace-type bluffs to zero. It's interesting. I was thinking about... Um, I was actually talking to someone I study with about this hand, and we were talking about what would we do versus what would he do or what happens in general with an overpair with a club on this board. And, you know, for me, like, I think, you know, I mean, I could split, like if I have, okay, so say I have like aces with the ace of clubs and I'm in his position. I mean, I think I could, I guess there's probably an argument for splitting between betting and checking, but I think that I'm more likely in that spot to check because I, um, because I don't want to bet and get raised and then like have to fold out all the equity that I had in the hand and also don't really have that much to worry about with a card bowling off because I do, I am drawing to the nuts. Um, and what my friend pointed out was that he thinks actually maybe the opposite is true for unsophisticated players, which is that if they have an overpair with a big club, they're more likely to bet because they think, oh, well, I have the best hand and a flush draw, um, so like I can put more money in, as opposed to thinking in terms like I am of, like, am I trying to capitalize on this hand or am I trying to realize my equity on this hand? And, and what happens if I bet? What happens if I get raised? So I don't know. I think that's a, a, the, his turn check rage here, and probably because I'm overthinking it, but is, is interesting to me because it's not really very clear to me what he, what he's checking on the turn. Yeah, I think I agree with your, your friend that some players are going to bet here more often, or sorry, bet in similar situations more often with a club versus check back and sort of simplify life. But I think that that might be not taking into account the pot size enough here. I actually think that I would not be surprised to see like a 90% check frequency here just because numbers are getting big and almost everything is reasonable as a check. And I think people just, someone who's a knit, I think is just going to defer towards like what's easy, what's justifiable, like what's justifiably good. That's low variance. How can I avoid putting like $2,000 in the middle in a spot where like, I, there's uncertainty. And so like, you know, over pairs with a club, over pairs without a club, uh, ace king with a club, ace king without a club, other types of hands. I think all these can very, very easily find checks here such that we're going to face a check quite a bit. I actually would even consider developing a lead range in this kind of spot just because 
we face so many checks. And part of the reason we face so many checks is it's not just because it's a club, although it's a major part, but it's also because it's a nine. You know, on the three of clubs, if that was available, uh, I think we probably see more bets. But the nine, it just gives you a, a lot of sets, which I think is going to be not at top of mind, but in the back of mind for people holding like kings with the king of clubs. Like I think that I think that hand that sort of hand class bets more on like a low club than the nine of clubs or like if it was the jack of clubs, especially. I think that's a card that your opponent is going to check back quite a few queens and kings because when you when you call the bet on the turn, they're probably already thinking that like you might have tens, you might have nines, you might have jacks, these types of hands, you might have clubs. So yeah, I, I think developing leads here makes sense. I actually think. There is a case for bluffing here if you have like the jack of clubs. But I think I would probably just be leading more for value just because we're up against a very strong range. Anyway, that, those are my thoughts. So would you consider your, you would consider leading like sets and flushes? Yeah. Okay. Just because so many, I think so many overpairs are just going to check back and they would have called. And it is a big range card for us as well. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not a card he likes. Yeah, part of why I'd rather have the Jack of Clubs here to bluff is not just because we have equity one behind, but also um, it just means that fourth club is coming less often. And the fourth club is really not good for our ability to bluff since our opponent definitely has a big advantage in terms of ace of club, king of club coverage. Yeah, for sure. We... I don't. I don't feel like we can bluff if, if a fourth club comes, I went, unless we like lighting money on fire half the time. Yeah, we just need a lot of precision. I mean, I think it can work, but it's <laughs> uh, if you're Jack Lasky, <laughs> don't try this at home. <laughs> so yeah, we faced a check. So was it a quick check or a, a thought out check? Um. It wasn't like deeply thought out. I think it was just like a pretty like, this is my standard line in this spot check. It wasn't like, ooh, what should I do? Okay, I decided to check finally. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So yeah, it was a pretty quick street. Yeah, I think that kind of shifts, shifts us towards like the extremes of range in the sense, and not just the poles, but the, I think this could be anything, but I would shift it a little bit more towards like for sure give ups, for sure bluff catchers and like a little bit of trappy nuts. Um, so like acing of hearts, I think probably just like snap checks back, um, figures it's never good. Uh, something like, you know, like Queens with the queen of clubs might just always check back. And then a little bit of like the flush or the nuts. That's my guess. If I were shifting the range, I would shift it towards those, Categories and a little bit less towards like ace of clubs, king, and that kind of thing. Okay, yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, okay, so river, you ready for a river? I'm ready for a river. Okay, okay, that was your drum roll. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so we go to a river, which is the seven of hearts, and this is where, like I was saying, like I've never really taken this line in a hand before. I decide to make a $100 block bet. My thinking behind this is that is that I, uh, well, two things. One is that 
perhaps I can see a showdown for for way less than if I check and let him choose the bet size. And I'm in a spot where I really don't want to have to decide if I think he's like decided to bet one more time with ace king with a blocker or without a blocker or whatever. And the other thing I'm thinking is that a, a bet size, this bet size also has to get called sometimes by ace king, I think, because he's getting seven to one once I make this bet. And uh, it's really hard, I think, to just fold there for, I mean, almost regardless of what you have. So I made a $100 bet, blocker bet. He raises to 300 and my first instinct is just obviously to pitch my cards, right? Then I started to think, well, I can't win my win the hand by pitching my cards. <laughs> <laughs> so what else could I do here? And um, I decided to shove for it was like about 650 more behind, which is a pretty small amount behind. But my thinking was that it's just really hard for him to call with like a hundred percent of his range here. Um, because he, he really just like, I mean, he can, he can basically have one flush, one or two combos of flushes and the rest of his hands are, are pairs or like ACE high, uh, with, uh, the ACE blocker. And, it's just real. I mean, it's just really hard for him to have anything, and it's much easier for me to have something. And I mean, this is like in the, just the most like layman terms of like what how, what are like my first thoughts is like it's really hard for him to have anything where he wants to stack off. It's much easier for me to have sets and flushes here, and and I think this guy is risk averse to the point that he really doesn't want to call off with one pair here and be wrong. So I decided to take like the super high variance route uh, and see if I could get him to fold. Yeah, this is a pretty interesting spot. So let me, let's start with, uh, if you don't mind, going back to the sizing yep. of the hundred. Yep. So what are you, what are your main goals here? Cause I think that I, I like the play. Um, I think it's, it's smart and it'll work a lot of the time. The sort of hundred shove over the top. But I think that it's the kind of thing that should be premeditated. We don't we don't want to be reacting. And so I think that if induction in order to get someone to bluff or sort of thinly value bet and then fold is our goal we should think about like whether a hundred is the best sizing. And if that, if that's really not the goal, then maybe we should think about again, whether a hundred is the best sizing. Um, so this kind of induction bet is what my former co-host Zach Resnick, uh, very lovingly dubbed a fuck you bet. Um, <laughs> and I think this might be, we can get a little bit more fuck you than this, I would say. And it might serve us well, because I think that what we want to, if our idea is we want to bluff, I still think that we don't mind when like we put out, let's say 50 bucks and just get like snap called because it's like, well, what else would I possibly do? 
mm-hmm. um, it's that's a pretty nice price to lock in. And so I think getting more towards like the sort of auto call portion of things is is good. And I also think that like making it a little bit more explicit in our opponent's mind that we were trying to induce when we actually come through with a bluff is also pretty strong. So like, let's say instead of 100, we bet like 35. And then our opponent raises 300, we come over the top. That seeming intentional in that way, I think it's going to make it seem more likely that we have the nuts rather than like if we bet like 150 and then tanked for a while and shoved like a 650 over, what is it, like a, like 400, let's say. I think that might work a little bit less often. It's just a hunch. Uh, I think it's worth exploring like the sort of extremes when we're in the realm of fuck you betting. I like that a lot, actually. I think, um, I mean, my primary, the primary goal of my bet was to get a cheap showdown, which is probably, which is why I picked a hundred because I think it's like enough that it makes it hard to raise. I mean, not maybe not makes it hard to raise, but it's enough that like you're kind of just going to like groan and just call when you have big pairs. I think some of the time, like you kind of have to, whereas, you know, if your primary goal is to bet shove, then like, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah, I think if we, it's not crazy in my mind to like also choose choose like a little bit of a merged size where we avoid getting bluffed. We can easily bet fold. We might get some hands to fold, like queens or kings, even aces without a club. And we, we set our own price. It's showdown. And I think that probably looks more like 250. And it, it, it's large enough that it might not be worth it. It might be better to just try and bluff catch instead of, uh, or just check fold versus bet that sizing. But I think if we want to really comfortably be able to bet fold, we probably have to go a little bit bigger than a hundred, which is kind of the experience you had where. Yeah. You didn't want to raised possibly for value with one pair (laughs) or possibly as a bluff. And it's like, well, right. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, so. yeah, I think if it, you know, I mean, obviously I hadn't, um, like this wasn't a necessarily <laughs> a pre-planned bet shove. So yeah, if I had been planning to bet shove, I think definitely like making a more, like you said, like an obvious induction size bet is pretty sweet. I think a hundred works in that, that sense. And here's, so here's sort of a general concept that everyone might benefit from thinking about is like sometimes ranges are murky in certain ways and not murky in other ways. So like when we bet a hundred and got raised to three fifty, the range was murky in the sense like we didn't know if we could bluff catch profitably. But it was not murky in the sense that like we could have a high degree of certainty that this was not like the nuts very often. 
not just because there's not very many nuts to begin with, and there's plenty of other hands that could raise, but also just because this sizing is like, it's not really a nuts sizing, let's be honest. So I think that's a really useful thing to consider, the fact that like you might be able to, different types of information can be useful. And sometimes we can't get certain information, but we can get other information. And poker is, we talk, a lot of people say like, oh, you don't, like betting for information is wrong. It's too expensive to bet for information. We have to bet for other reasons. And that's not bad advice. You know, it's not like your grandma said about poker where it's like, oh, you're just, so you bet to figure out where you're at. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that simple, but I do think like poker is still a game of information. And the more information we have, the better we are going to be able to play. And so thinking about how you can generate useful information from your line work is probably the most important thing to be thinking about. So here, potentially, the only way we can really generate any useful information about our opponent's range is by trying to induce a merged bet, which is why I think this can be such a strong play. That reminds me to a, um, a similar concept where you don't want to be going all in, or sorry, you don't want to leave yourself facing an all-in that will be kind of indifferent to calling to, like, you don't want to set yourself up to face that size from your opponent. Yeah, in in the similar way that we don't want to set ourselves up for being raised here and not really knowing what to do. I guess, yeah, we need to yeah, we need to keep in mind, like, we're going to use, like, this third option of going, like, three-betting over or something um, beforehand. Um, yeah, you want to avoid situations where you are indifferent against your opponent. Right. Because indifference is essentially saying that we don't... Our, our opponent has presented information that we cannot use. So... Just to talk a little bit, I mean, we already kind of talked about it, but in terms of the decision to shove over the 350, uh, I think it's pretty awesome, and I like it. And, <laughs> and I don't know if I would have done it in the sense that, like, I mean, it wasn't easy to get to this spot. Like, a lot, <laughs> a lot of things had to go right in the sense that, like, we could have made a lot of different decisions early in the hand. I think we could have folded pre. I think we, we probably can't fold the flop, but some people would. And we kind of needed a turn card where our opponent maintained a lot of their range in a check back such that they have like many more combos than just the nuts. But yeah, I think once you face this race, to me, your decision is not, is not to, it should be between call and raise. I think there's enough junk that, like, I think a lot of people don't want to fold to a hundred and therefore like bluff. It's pretty sophisticated to do that though. Yeah, but what does Ace-King beat? Well, I think Ace-King calls a lot because they just don't know what to do and they don't want to fold for 100. I think raising with Ace-King is pretty sophisticated. And I see it a lot at the at 2-5 where people call with, like, you know, call a bluff with worse and are just like, ah, oh, man, I should have raised. But they, like, don't think of it until they see but I mean, that's like anecdotal, but I'm saying it does happen. Um, 
Also, at Win25, people are still betting for information, if that makes you have hope for the poker world. I think it's just good awareness like that he doesn't have the nuts like hardly ever in this range. Like it's it's easy like talking about it for an hour on the podcast that to realize that, but in the moment, um, you know, sometimes the fog can creep in and um, yeah, I don't know. I could see myself like fall into this phase if I'm not um, if I'm not really tuned in. Yeah, me too, for sure. For sure. So results, what did uh, uh, he had at the Ace-King clubs? Uh, no, he folded. We got it through. Awesome. I'm not surprised. I, I think this might get it through 100% of the time, to be honest. Against certain players, that is. Not everybody, but against the player you described, I think there's a number of people who only take this line with hands that will end up folding to this shove. Um, yeah, otherwise, like, maybe they would have shoved, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's the thing about this hand is that a player who's really bad is going to call the shove and a player who's really good is going to call the shove. And you got to find that player in between the player who's good enough to fold one pair, but not good enough to figure out that they shouldn't like, that's my target market. <laughs> well, should they not? Well, no, I'm saying um, maybe not Not good. Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Is um, not good enough to try to break it down and think about what hands could, I could actually have and realize that they have to have some kind of calling frequency. You know, like if this player is folding 100% of hands, like that's not good, obviously, because I do have bluffs in my range. So I want to do it against a player who's either who who's not so bad that they're like, oh well, I have aces, I should call, and not so good that they're like, oh well, you know, what's her bluff frequency? Yeah, although I I do think it's possible that some people's bluff frequency here is zero, which yeah. is whenever we can be bluffing in a a spot where some of our opponents never bluff. That's uh. That often works. Unless they're never bluffing because those bluffs never work. <laughs> and then they have something figured out we don't. Yeah. <laughs> That's not where we want to be. <laughs> well, sick brag, Lily. <laughs> oh, man. Well, uh, it's an interesting one. It's definitely an interesting one. Uh, most people I've talked to have said that I never should have made it to the turn in the first place. So I don't know if it's a brag, but, uh, but it's a fun one, right? Yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, if anything, if any other line than this, other than like maybe sh switching up our river sizing slightly, would be to fold preflop. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's sort of a marginal difference. Mm -hmm. So anyone who yeah. says like, oh, you shouldn't have got here is just like, you know, protecting their own ego from the fact that they're never making plays that are this badass. <laughs> just stop at bad, this bad. <laughs> but thanks, I'll take the compliment. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, no, super interesting hand, super non-standard hand for me, which is um, why I thought why I thought it would be a cool one to to talk about because it's something that um, I was sort of playing around with that um, also wasn't that worried if it didn't work because it's not a part of my normal game, but something to um, 
kind of fucking around with stuff like this is how you um, broaden your game to include exploits that um, that could be very specific but very profitable, you know? Yeah. So, so it worked, but um, if it hadn't worked, I think it's fine too to for you know just to learn to you know like you um you learn a lot when you, you make mistakes in poker and uh i've made a lot of mistakes so <laughs> yeah no i think it's this is really a testament to i think in some in a certain way just the advantage that the professional has the fact that you're in this spot you maintain your composure on the river even though even though you didn't make the decision beforehand, the fact that you made the decision in the moment is almost more impressive in the sense that you were able to bypass your instinct, which was to fold. Not, and not just consider like, okay, maybe I should call because my opponent could be bluffing, but to consider that, you know what, my opponent, the range actually isn't that strong. And on second thought, I'm going to shove with jacks. <laughs> Yeah. And I think the opposite is true too, is like when you have a plan, you have to be able to abandon it when you see something that's not right. Yeah, for sure. But my, my plan, you know, on this board was to like, so my plan on the flop is often going to be to make an exploitative fold where like really our opponent just is not going to play in a way where it's going to be profitable for us to bluff catch. Mm-hmm. And then when we see this sizing, like I think we audible. Because our opponent's range all of a sudden, in my mind, gets shifted away from kings, queens, maybe aces, towards ace-king. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I and, and I think that's really, like, also, you have to have these kind of situations where, like you said, like, your your instinct is to make an exploitable fold. And, like, you know, I think you're, you have um, amateur players who would, who would look at that and say well, you called with Jackson, got a 10 high flop. What? Do you, why are you folding to one bet? And that's exactly the point is like, because you know that his range is just stronger than yours, like regardless, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm not calling to make an overpair. Um, and I think that's important too, is because when you get a flop that people think looks good for your hand, a lot of times it's not the flop you were looking for and you don't want to talk yourself into calling when you shouldn't. Yeah, I think that kind of spot is, in a lot of ways, just a a lack of recognition of the percentage of our EV of the prefab call that comes from actually just spiking a jack versus Mm -hmm. a tight range. So yeah, I think if anything, you're cheering for a board with a jack or a board with an ace and a 10 high board is, that's trouble. 10 high board is the type of board where you could really get yourself in trouble check calling. Yeah. Because uh, you can also then talk yourself into another check call and, you know, that kind of thing. Like, those are the kinds of situations that can really spiral out of control with one pair that you were probably just should have folded pre-flop. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's uh, really that a huge part of the value of being able to make reads in the moment is the ability to navigate those kinds of spots much more effectively. Like, when your opponent's polarized and then they give you information, it's death to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big problem. And so, it, honestly, it's a, it's a big part of the risk of playing live poker is the fact that, like, you're supposed to be taking polarized strategies, but you're fallible and are likely going to act differently such that, like, 
someone with like unlimited time could figure out when you were doing one versus the other. So yeah, being able to, that's why I'm such an advocate for spending time trying to look at physical reads, um, trying to read into bed sizing, just because I think that these things can, it can shift what is by, by sort of the strategic nature of it, a very unprofitable spot into among your most profitable points. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really true. I think that um, that one thing I've really learned about um, live reads is that I have to trust my gut because a lot of times you can talk yourself out of a decision you made on a lot, like based on um, like intuition and your intuition is gathering all of these like invisible variables almost, you know, that you've seen, you know, a hundred thousand times and assimilating them into the correct decision. And when you've played the number of hand, like when you've played live two five for 10 years, like I have, sometimes you know the right answer. And if you talk yourself through it, you know, you'll talk yourself into the wrong answer based on, you know, what the solver says or, or, or what you think your friend will say after you tell them the hand history when you fold or, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's so easy. We have so much um, ego and information that sometimes you're doing yourself a disservice. And, you know, that said, you don't want to be like that guy who's like, oh, I folded because I knew he had it. But that's, I don't think what it is when you have the amount of experience that that I do in these games is that those kinds of things are really your, you know, your subconscious mind doing you a favor because your conscious mind can't possibly take in that much stimuli. Yeah. Trust your instinct. Beware your desire. (laughs) That's a really good one for poker. (laughs) Very, very good one. Well, Lily, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we'd love to have you back on at some point. This is a really fascinating spot and yeah. you play a lot of poker. So you're going to have some more spots to, to chat about. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. I'm happy to be your color girl anytime. <laughs> <laughs> right, reporting live from Las Vegas. That was Lily Torrance. Thank you for joining us here at Just Hands Poker and we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>